agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, well, good afternoon, Mike. Hey, how are you doing this afternoon, Jay? I am, uh, I am more psyched for this weekend than uh, uh, disinformation czar Nina Jankowitz at uh, community theater auditions. <laughs> Man, you had that one all teed up. I like it. Well, I, I am I am excited in a pretty good mood as well. I got done with my end of the semester grading, and that's always a, a very positive sort of thing. So I'm looking forward to talking with a, about a bunch of stuff with you today. Uh, we're going to talk about sort of the post-row landscape as we see it, uh, some primary elections this last week, and what it may or may not say about Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party the COVID summit just a few days ago, a uh, situation as it develops in U- with Ukraine and Russia, inflation, the uh, market's not looking so great, and maybe if we, if we should reconsider those China tariffs and why I might be leaving the country for good in a few years. Uh, oh, oh, no. oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, but there's, there's always the Internet, so I won't be leaving you, Jay, or, or listeners. So there we go. Anyway, we're going to tackle as much of that as we can. Before we do, we'll just take one quick pause and be right back to start things off. Right, Jay, you know, I realized I I forgot to mention something to to you and to the listeners as well, is that our schedule is going to change a little bit. Normally, we'd be doing the show next week, but actually, Trey and Ken are going to be on. And that's because uh, I have jury duty coming up for the next uh, couple of weeks. And so this will be a first for me. I know you spend a lot of time in the courtroom, but... Uh, I do. Yeah, me Well, no, much. although not... Here's the thing. It's, it's weird. Actually, not as much time in the courtroom as you'd think because so much stuff happens outside. Outside, yeah. Well, yeah. All of my time... Actually be in the all of my time will be in the... Well, it depends. It depends because my wife had jury duty a few years ago, uh, but she actually was dismissed after when she was asked about how she felt about... Uh, uh, gun. She mentioned that she felt that the Supreme Court got it wrong in Heller, and uh, next thing she knew, she was dismissed. So uh, I, I, I filed that away. I, I also thought I might mention my agreement with Justice Sotomayor about there being a, a, a proper place for jury nullification, and kind of see how that goes over. So I don't, I don't know. So what what kind of jury are you going to be on? Uh this is just the uh, regular old. What's it? Is it? Is it the editor? Yeah, there you go. Hamilton for Hamilton County. There you go for Hamilton County. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the next uh, two weeks up to they they say so. uh, But yeah, I'm I'm looking looking forward to it. It should be an interesting experience. So yeah, and there's I think $19 a day, I believe. It's uh, so there you go to sock that jury pay away. But uh, anyway, you know. It was interesting I, I, when in kind of thinking about this and looking into jury nullification. Not that I think it's probably going to come up, but uh, and I found Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor's uh, comment on that. And it turns out in, in looking at that, I, I realized that she's actually the only currently serving justice who's, at, who's presided over a jury trial, which – I don't know. I found that I was a little bit surprised by that. Maybe you're, you're not as surprised no, as not I am. No. But but yeah, now next term, there will be a second justice with trial court experience because Justice Jackson was a judge on the D.C. District Court. But yeah, aside from that, it's pretty much it's, it's either 
uh, appellate court, the Supreme Court, or something else, like it was uh, Kagan was a former solicitor general, but pretty much the way through is through a, 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 through a circuit court without any trial court experience. So, you know, I was, and I wanted to get your take on that. Do you think that matters at all? That, you know, in, in the past, we used to talk occasionally about the fact that none of the justices had served in legislatures. Now, Justice o, uh, uh, O'Connor back in the day was in the Arizona uh, state legislature, but do you think that that matters at all? We always talk about how weird the justices are in so many ways. Is that is that a difference that makes a difference? Do you think? Not to me, not really. Um, uh, and and I'll I'll tell you why. Just because of the the roles that they're playing uh, are are different. Now, I guess you know is it is it is it better to say, listen, you've had trial judge experience, so that sort of informs your opinion. Um, as to how things actually happen and how things actually happened at the trial level. Um, no, maybe. I mean, it really doesn't hurt, right? But I don't think it gives you, when you're talking about pure questions of law, which is typically what's, you know, before, uh, before the appeals courts and the uh, Supreme Court, um, you're, those those day-to-day, the mechanics of running a courtroom um, uh, don't, I don't know that gives you that much, right? And if and if you practice law, I think that certainly helps as well. Um, but still, it's just kind of a different. It's a different job. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of was my sense is that it 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 might help. It can't hurt. But it doesn't necessarily help all that much. I guess was sort of my my sense of that. But but it, it's uh, it's interesting because I looked for I, I, what the reason I came across this is I was looking for what Supreme court justices might've had to say about jury nullification. Cause I was just curious about that given, given where I'm going to be. And uh, just as some, I was the only one I could find. <laughs> You're really planning ahead. You're and, oh yeah. I got, I got the ready whole, to go, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But, but I don't know. I actually am sort of in favor of jury nullification. And so I think justice Sotomayor is right about that. And she was talking about it uh, in the context of some juries in, in, uh, in the context of the civil rights movement and that, and just not, you know, not wanting to convict people on unjust laws. And I think there is actually something to be said for that. Now, this is not the sort of thing I've ever had to think about before, but it's something that might've been a, an issue for you, at least in, at least conceivably. And do you, do you think that jury nullification is ever an okay thing? I guess we should tell listeners what that is uh, but you probably have a better way of putting that than i would i would so, imagine so yeah i mean jury nullification is essentially uh, uh <clears throat> when a jury just makes up its mind uh that despite facts or evidence or how it's been instructed it's going to take a uh, a certain position right um contrary Simpson, to those facts uh, yeah for example i mean um now as a practitioner that it it certainly troubles me right <laughs> i would imagine yeah because you know this is the way the the system's supposed to function, and the jury is to be the finder of facts and so to some extent finding of facts they can they can they can fact find and and come up with as goofy fact findings as they want that's their province um but they're also supposed to if they find certain facts, this is what you rule on the law as they're instructed by the judge um so that's that's troubling if you're not doing what the judge says um but all that said, there's there's sort of a black box, right? That, that happens, and you know the jury can just decide we're not going to find these facts, uh, and therefore we won't reach those conclu- those conclusions. Um, uh, my sense is it it happens very rarely um, when it's an actual when you you know nullification, uh, right? When it's was really a 
you have you have the jury that says we absolutely think this guy did it uh, guilty as hell, but we're not going to convict because we don't like the crime. Um, has that happened before, or or we're not going to convict? Make some other point, right? Um, I mean, it has it happened? Certainly. Does it happen often? No. Um, and when it happens, I mean, the the jury I don't think calls it jury nullification. No, no, <laughs> they just call it this is this is how we see it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and so on from a practitioner standpoint, no, I'm I'm certainly not crazy about it because it sort of uh, means all you're doing could be could be for naught, uh, and it tends to fly in the face of the rule of law. Um, as a um, citizen, uh, I I'm I I don't feel as bad about it, right? Because it does give those sort of outs occasionally, um, particularly in criminal convictions. Um, I mean, the, the bigger the, the bigger trouble for me, and maybe this is just you know how my mind works is is mostly what I do with civil is if you get a a jury that is kind of a runaway jury that's going to look, we're going to give um, uh, we're going to uh, rule against this corporation because they're a corporation and eighteen trillion dollars. Um, yeah, we're gonna yeah <laughs> these guys because they got the money. That gets overturned um, on appeal anyway, so or reduced yeah, right. Yeah, so, so that's yeah. th- that kind of thing um, would would be troubling to me, more troubling to me. Um, but I think it, it does provide an important safeguard. And this is this is why, and I mean the jury system was so important to the founders because coming out of the um the the system that, that they had seen in uh sixteenth, seventeenth uh, uh century England, right? The ability of a jury to to uh, safeguard someone's freedom was was a yeah. really big deal. Um uh so so yeah, I also see it. Yeah, so more in the criminal context to prevent against government abuses. Um, but so so maybe maybe I will have the opportunity to safeguard someone's freedom, or maybe it will never maybe. get to that point. But either way, I will report back on my jury duty experience here. So uh, anyway, but I, I I just thought I'd bring that up because I was just curious about jury nullification and your thoughts on it. So anyway, um, well we're gonna stick. With the courts, actually, well, in a way, last week, right, Trey and Ken discussed the legal reasoning of Justice Alito's leaked draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, and as well as the really extraordinary fact that the draft was leaked in the first place. And and I thought, you know, we can talk about the opinion uh, as well as any dissents that there certainly will be and concurrences. I think when the court issues them officially in what a month, month and a half, something like that, probably I would guess is when that's going to come out. But, but I wanted to hold off on that, especially in light of the fact that Jay and uh, that Trey and Ken talked about the, the, the opinion itself or the draft, sorry. But for now, I think what seems almost certain, at least seems almost certain to me, is that Roe will, in fact, be overturned, uh, meaning that the court will hold that there is no constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy. So well, let's start there. I, I guess, would you, do you agree with that, Jay? I mean, I mean, if that if that's going to yeah. happen? Okay, I, because <laughs> there is this school, of, right, there's this, this, not school of thought, but there are some folks who think maybe that Chief Justice Roberts can somehow end up persuading at least one of his colleagues further on the right that the major that the majority should uphold Mississippi's law right, and not, not completely overturn Roe. Roe. Yeah. Which I, is I'm not I'm not sure how you thread that needle. Yeah, I yeah, it's that's a good question. I and think. again, I mean uh Justice Roberts is uh, uh much smarter than I am. Um so maybe he does have a plan as to how to thread that needle. But I well, you, I'm, I'm, I don't know that, that there is. I think if you look back to the oral arguments in this case, Robert seemed to be pretty clearly inclined to accept Mississippi's argument about there being 
and important uh, physiological developments in the fetus by 15 weeks, and hence their limit was okay, increased risk to the mother, that sort of thing. And so I could see him writing that opinion. Just but where he, move, he would move the line from viability back to 15 weeks. Yeah, because, of, because it's not necessarily that all of a sudden it's a stark line where the state's interest were at viability, but it's kind of a sliding scale. And yeah. so, but I think that just, that's obviously problematic for a lot of reasons, but we're we're kind of on the same same page here. Neither of us really thinks that that is going to happen. So, if that ends up being the case, we're both right on this. Then, it, as far as I can tell, it would be the first time in the history of the Supreme Court that an individual right's been declared and then revoked. Right? I mean, I I guess you could I guess you could argue that I wasn't ready for that question. Well, yeah. Otherwise, what I would have done some more research. Well, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking on it now. While you're thinking on that, you could say, well, okay, the Lochner era court declared a right of contract right. and then reversed that. But that I want would, work eighty hours a week at the bakery. But yeah, exactly. That was much more a right of businesses to not be bound by those kind of maximum hour worker regulations, you know, sort of thing. So, I, I think you could technically maybe say that that was an individual right as well, but it feels very different, I would say. But but aside from that, you could say, well, what about the death penalty cases? There was Furman and Greg, but that really was not an issue with the constitutionality of the death penalty itself. It was how it was carried out, and there were all these weird different opinions and so forth. So that didn't quite fit that mold either. So again, as far as I can tell, this would be the first time that the court has ever reversed itself, having previously granted a pretty clear individual right. Um, so, so yeah, which is, uh, well, let me, I, again, I, I don't want to commit to that before. I no, I totally, I totally get that. that. So we will, well, come, come back to that. Uh, or, or chime and, in through your, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But email or yes, if you, if you have an idea of a individual right that has yeah. been granted and, uh, was taken away yeah, by the court. Do. Definitely. Um, so, but before we get into kind of the, the, the post row world or country, actually, I thought that it might be helpful both for us and for listeners to get some sort of context here that I think is sometimes missing from some of these discussions. For instance, uh, 91, around 91% of abortions happen by 13 weeks. And then this is according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. So when we're looking at limits and time limits and week limits, that sort of thing, I think that's relevant, certainly, if legislatures can set whatever limits that they want. And then, In, in other words, the Mississippi ban 15 would, weeks yeah yeah would not affect 90 percent of abortions thereabouts right thereabouts if i'm exactly. extrapolating yeah. those numbers yeah and if we look at another study this is from 2018 found that women know in, in the u.s know that they're pregnant on average around five point five and a half weeks after the fact and around 95 percent of women know within 10 weeks uh there's a kind of a slight spike at 12 weeks but Pretty much most women know that they're pregnant. And I, I bring this up. I think it's important because there's that period between a woman knowing that she's pregnant and having to make that decision. And so that has to factor into those decisions. Right. And as you might expect, the women who find out who realize they're pregnant later tend to be disproportionately younger. And by that, I mean, under 20, uh, poorer and non-white, uh, which also I think is, is uh, an important factor to consider as well. And then there's just the number of abortions, right? According to the CDC from 2019, which is the last year they were, they're reporting data from, there were 629,898 abortions in the U.S. 
That's just under 2% of pregnancies in that year ended in abortion. And so, you know, there was always this thing on the left, and there still is, I'm sure, that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, and 2%. Is that, does that meet that criteria? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. And that's a rate that also has been dropping over the last yeah. decade, in, in, in really in every state. Well, and it's been dropping, and dry, it's been dropping tremendously even since Roe versus Wade. Yeah, I mean, it's been, yeah. it's been a pretty long-term drop, and there's no real clear correlation between the restrictiveness of laws in these declines, though so that would obviously, I would expect, change if they're going to be outright bans, which they haven't been able to be. Um, and Mike, I, I could, I, if I'll, I'd chime yeah. in. I, yeah, please I do. My, my sense, my guess is, without having hard numbers on this, is that it's, the decline is, is more due to availability, reliability of, of birth control. Um, uh, compared to what it was that might make, again, yeah. in 1973. Yeah, that, that, that would totally make sense, not having the data, but that seems like a, a very reasonable supposition. I wouldn't certainly would, I would be inclined to agree with that. Absolutely. And then there's, you know, public opinion on this, right? Because if it's going to be a le- an issue that legislatures are going to decide, they're going to look at that. Now, uh, a few months ago, the Pew Research Center gathered some data on this. They found that 61% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in most cases, and around 25% are essentially absolutists on that. Legal in all instances at all times, pretty right, much. Up right? to the first year. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, and now on the pro-life side, there are around 10% that are anti-abortion absol- absolutists, like under no conditions, rape, incest, doesn't matter, and around 27% believe that abortion should be illegal in most instances. So. I think it's kind of helpful to think about those things when we're thinking about how legislatures might act on this. And I'm wondering, is there anything you mentioned one thing already? Is there anything else that maybe jumps out at you, strikes you about those stats, anything that might be particularly relevant to legislatures or Congress uh, now that it seems like either or is going to be able to, you know, at least try to pass legislation? Yeah. On this? Um, so, no, I, I was going to add one other sort of Factoid that yeah. I, I saw a week or so ago. And again, I can't. I haven't done all the back background research on this, but this this estimate was uh, that ninety two percent. If if the matter went to the states, right, and you're going to predict what states did what, uh, or which states already have the automatic bans that, that would come into effect uh, if if Roe v. Wade is struck down, ninety two percent of uh, abortions would still occur. Right, because you you have a, a massing of a lot of those abortions occur in states that uh, are are deep blue and have zero to you know no restrictions, um, and would continue to have them in a pro uh, post row uh, environment, um, and that again the 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 idea of this is going to be a massive change. Uh, right, I see what you're saying, and a number yeah. of them are higher population states like California, exactly. New, York, New York, that sort California. of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the life is not really going to change for you. Yeah. So um, and so, again, this is not to suggest, certainly from my side, not to suggest that I agree that with Justice Alito, that uh, abortion is not a, a the right to terminate a pregnancy is not a fundamental right. But given that that seems to be what what, what the interpretation is going to be, that legislature is going to have to live under, I think it's important to keep those things in mind. And so, I mean, I, I think you're right. It seems to me that on the ground for a lot of folks. 
things are not necessarily going to change. But certainly if you're a, if you're a pro-life person, you say, well, there probably is going to be a not insignificant decrease in the number of abortions overall. And hey, if if by doing this, we can we can ensure that uh, a few thousand, a few tens of yeah. thousands more children are born as opposed to fetuses aborted. That's worth everything that we fought for. Yeah, right? and if if there are six hundred or seven hundred thousand abortions a year, if you reduce that number by one percent, right? Yeah. Um, that's seven thousand yeah. babies. Yeah, absolutely. And and, that's that's not insignificant. You're a a right to lifer. Yeah, and if you're if you're a pro-choicer, that the logic works the same way in in the other direction, certainly. So so yeah, I mean, uh, but you know, it seems to me also that there's the possibility of there being not just state action, because, of course, it's been a long, long-standing thing, right? Let the states decide. And pretty clearly, a state like Mass- uh, Mississippi is going to decide differently than a state like Massachusetts if it's not seen as a fundamental right. right. But there's also now the possibility of congressional action, right? Uh, this yeah. week, Senate Democrats tried to move forward uh, a bill called the Women's Health Protection Act, and that would have basically given women across the country the right to terminate a pre-viability pregnancy without any of the various restrictions that sort of anti-abortion predominant states have imposed ostensibly in the name of safety or informed consent. And so the idea behind the legislation being that you can't put in any other safeguards, if you will, that aren't normally in place for other uh, elective surgical procedures of kind of a similar nature sort of thing. Um, And that, of course, would have required 60 votes to get through a filibuster, but it didn't even get a majority. You had 49 Democratic senators in support. Then you had, uh, I'm going to start calling him Republicrat, Joe Manchin, uh, not in support with all the uh, Republicans. And there was a companion bill of this that passed in the House in September, a very close vote, 218 to 211, as you would expect, almost entirely party line. Uh, there was only one Democrat who joined every Republican uh, voting against that sort of thing. And so I guess there are a couple of questions I have for you, Jay, on this. First off, what do you think about federal legislation in general on this? And, I'm against it. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> and explain you're, you're, you're why. You have to say on this, right? Just yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> true. Why so? Um, so again, it's, it's comes down to that government. Uh, if, if we're going to, uh, believe in, uh, uh, government by the people, um, I think it makes most sense that the government that is closest to the people, um, is, is the most responsive to it. Right. And, and you can have states which are, as, as, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, laboratories of democracy. I think it was Holmes. Was it Holmes or did I goof that up? I don't know. It's just always safe one to attribute those, things to Holmes, guys. you know? So, um, yeah. No, but the look, the idea being that um you know what is what is acceptable to the people of California might not be acceptable to the people of Oklahoma or Mississippi. Um and as a a federal system, uh those folks have a right to kind of decide how things go in their state. Um again, we're at this point where we are assuming that it's it's not a fundamental constitutional right, so it is governed by states. Secondly, I think the states give you more room uh, to compromise, more room to craft something that that works uh, for them. Um, as as you mentioned earlier, the, the vast majority of people in the country, polls show, are conflicted on abortion, uh, and they do they don't think abortion should be used as just a regular substitute for birth control. 
Uh, they have big problems with, say, abortion for reasons of uh, sex selection or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, they they have uh, problems with late term uh, abortions. Um, but that line is hazier and it's tougher much early on, right? Um, and I think there are a lot of those folks who could say, you know, you know, here here's where I am. Look, I think a uh, a partial birth abortion DNX procedure is uh, abhorrent. Um, but you know what? I don't oppose a morning after plan B pill. I, I think there are a whole lot of people who, who fall into that range. And as you pointed out, most of the abortions take place before the Mississippi limit would, would, uh, would kick in. Um, and, and I think these are issues that, that state legislators can, can work out for the, you know, as, as they see fit for their states. And you're going to get different results in different states. You're going to have places like California and New York where you will have um, abortion will likely be legal up until the absolute minute of birth. Um, uh, or, or as some as even suggested, may a little bit after. Um, but I, so, and I, I, you know, as someone who's pro-life, uh, am I, am I happy with that? Not particularly. Um, but as someone who's, who's pro-democracy, uh, yeah, I mean, these are, these are tough, difficult issues. Uh, and this is the place that they ought to be worked out. And, and you know what? When when these debates happen, I mean, then people can go out and they can march on the state house, right? And they can wave signs and they can lobby their state legislators, um, which all makes a lot more sense than trying to uh, uh, march outside of Supreme Court justices' house houses. And you know, I I, uh, I am on the side of those sort of uh, safe legal and rare uh, Democrats, which is most most Democrats or a lot of Democrats, certainly. But and so I, I'm a little conflicted because I also agree, you know, just more generally with you about government closest to the people making decisions. And so but you would think that on the surface, that would mean I would be against this legislation. But weirdly, I'm not, because if you are like I am a Democrat who believes that there actually is a fundamental right at stake here. Then and you feel that the Supreme Court is erring in not in, in revoking, rescinding this right, then you have to say, well, what are our options as well, basically to do a second best and sort of enshrine this right in law as a this kind of a second best option sort of thing. So that's kind of where I'm at. Well, I don't this. know that the second best. I'm not saying that even enshrining it in law is second best or first best. I'm saying that the law ought to be at the state level rather than the federal yeah, level. But, but you're also you you also would agree that if if there's something that you would see as a fundamental right, that that's not something the states get to decide or the Congress gets to well, decide for that matter. Right. But it's not a matter of whether I see it as a as a uh, fundamental right or not. It's whether the Supreme Court is seen as right. A right. right. What I'm saying is if you believe yeah. that the court is wrong in that, then it, that maybe changes the calculation. It certainly did for me because uh, we're dealing with, I believe, a fundamental right here and a, and, you know, I, I, and an egregiously incorrect Supreme so, Court. Decision. So in that case, you would you're, you're essentially would argue that Congress should step in when there is a this kind of issue as opposed to leaving it to the states. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, okay. this, I'm not specific I, that's, that's class. A, I'd say that's an intellectually defensible position. Well, thank you. I try to have oh, yeah. one of those. Yeah, no, I, and like I said, I, I, I think it's, it's better at the state level. Um, I think there's, there could also be um, challenges to, is this a general federal police power? Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, I think troubling. And is there the commerce clause issues? Now, look, you can certainly make the commerce clause issue that, um, that relates to travel and medical care and people travel for this for medical. So, uh, so look, there's, you know, the, those 
those arguments would be there. I think it would also be like sort of these uh, uh, state preemption sort of argument. The states have already occupied the field um, on this. Um, uh, but uh, I think if there were, no, yeah. I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, I, I, I don't, I still, I, I still think a um, uh, legislation passed by Congress is still better than uh, edicts from the court. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and I would, uh, generally speaking, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So let's let's think about this now in terms of. And, and Mike, I, I want to say this is. I had a. There's really there's a, a judge uh, here in the Sixth Circuit, um, uh, in which handles uh, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and uh, Tennessee, and he does these these talks. And one of the questions he he begins with is, "What regime would you rather live under?" Uh, would you rather if if you had to choose if you could pick between having living under the board versus uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education or the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which would you choose? Yeah, the the, the latter. And once you think yeah, it through, but yeah. everyone says, well, yeah, the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's as a general principle, that's a great place to start. I'm I'm with you entirely on that. So yeah. So moving on, though, to those political ramifications, I mean, how do you see this affecting politics, first in the midterms, most obviously, because we're only a few months away from that, right? we're already into the primaries, we'll talk about those in a minute, and then even into the 2024 elections? So I, I don't see that impacting the midterms a whole lot. I mean, I think it energizes the, the Democrat base. Um, but I think the people for whom this is a, a a really big issue are already going to vote anyway, right? It's it's I don't think you you you've had uh, the folks who are really strong uh, abortion rights activists who are sort of on the fence, or even even lukewarm abortion rights activists. I think they're going to vote Democrat, and they would uh, continue to do so, and uh, that's that's not going to change. Yeah, that's that's essentially my take. I don't see a lot of movement either way. You know, we're already pretty polarized. And I th- though I do think that at the margins, it will probably help Democrats a little bit, but not nearly enough to say, allow them to keep the house. And yeah, probably I, not I, think, I think it gets a little bump in intensity, but to me, it's, it's, uh, again, as the, uh, Bill Clinton, um, you know, it's, it's the economy. Stupid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so uh, looking even a little bit Further out into the future, I mean, it's a long way until 2024. And anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen is just, you know, kind of full of it. But it seems to me that in that very uncertain environment, I can easily paint a picture. In fact, to me, the most likely picked outcome is Donald Trump winning uh, another term and having majorities in both chambers and majorities that are going to be in both chambers Trumpier and at least in the Senate, a larger majority than he had the first time around because. Donald Trump came in in 2017, had was plus two in the Senate, plus 47 in the House. Now, if you kind of look at the lay of the land now, the House margin m- might not change a whole lot uh, from what he saw that last time. But he's likely to have a few more senators on his side. And so I can easily see a situation in which, well, there are enough votes to end the filibuster, no matter what Mitch McConnell's saying, uh, even if it's just for, I don't know, protecting unborn life or something like that. And I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be a, a crazy sort of way of looking at it where, where, you know, 
uh, pro, pro-life pro activists say, wait a second, we can't countenance a sort of situation where California and Massachusetts and all these states are allowing this crazy stuff, not when you can act now that the Supreme Court has let you act. And I think there might be a big enough majority and enough pressure from that from those groups to actually force the matter. I, what, am, I, am I being too apocalyptic about that? I would disagree. That? Okay. I, well, let's put it this way. I would hopefully disagree. It's one of those, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say to me, I hope you're wrong yeah. or I hope you're right. Um, because I, I would think most folks in the, the pro-life movement uh, would realize that if you get rid of the filibuster, um, you know, we, you, we could end up in a, a, a horrible situation, right, where we're, we're flipping back and forth on this issue uh, every two years. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's sort of like the only the only um, idea that would be sort of worse than our, our regime of having the, the court make these decisions would be having the, you know, Congress do it and, and no filibuster uh, uh Right, you know, speed bump, and, and yeah. we'll just be flipping back. That I think that would be. Um, well, see that that's uh, where part that's where part two comes in, Jay. Is where okay. after after you after you pass after the Republican Congress passes that, then they also put in another exception for the filibuster for uh, I don't know election integrity, election security measures, and so kind of kind of sort of bake in a little more of the structural advantages that re- Republicans have for various reasons to kind of secure that. So it'd have to be, you know, a, a package sort of thing, not necessarily in the same vote, but at, during the same term. And I can easily see a 2025 kind of shaping up that way, at which point, I don't know, Kimberly and I are in uh, Uruguay or Chile or something like that and saying, hey, you know, that's not good. But anyway. Uh, so, more. no, I, I, I do think in Again, I, I don't know, right? I just, I, I hope you're wrong. Sure, me too. But I would think most Republicans, most conservatives would, as their conservative kind of nature, be against, um, they, they would be, for one thing, you know, intuitively institutionalist, yeah, right? I, and would yeah. reject that sort of, hey, let's get rid of the filibuster. Um, uh, I, I, I would have to, I would have to think uh, that would be the, the default position. Well, see, I would, I would, I would like to share your faith that a significant plurality or even a significant minority of Republicans are what you and I would recognize as conservatives. Uh, but I don't know that I feel that's true anymore. It, it'd be a better, it's a better world if it is true for sure. And, 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 you know, it's not, it's not, um, there are conversations on the right that, that people are, have these very concerns. Um, I think I, I told you this was, um, was a couple months ago, but it, again, the, the, uh, the geeky analogy of, of, um, you know, the ring of power and, yeah. uh, uh, Boromir and, uh, or the idea of like, look, if I take the ring, I'll use it for good. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, but no, it, it, it will corrupt you in the end. And the, the true conservative position is that, uh, that power corrupts, uh, uh, and, and yeah, the idea that. If, if we have the power, we'll do the right thing. That's that should be guarded against you know, you, at all it, costs. It's funny you mentioned that, and it made me think of. I showed one of my one of my uh, American politics classes a film called The Swamp, which which uh, featured a number of uh, mainly Republicans who were trying to well drain freedom swamp, freedom caucus guys. One of them was was Thomas Massey, who I, I 
personally found very engaging to talk to. I disagree with him on a lot, you know, but he had this long analogy where he, he talked about his congressional pin. And you, you know what I'm talking about, those pins that all members of Congress yeah, yeah. wear. He's like, he's like, he tries to wear it as little as possible, he says, because it's like precious from Lord of the Rings where, you know, everyone is just, you, you feel special and it's all this power. And he says, it just kind of creeps him out in a way. And I'm like, you know, I don't agree with him on a lot, but I really appreciate that kind of viewpoint on power, at least, that there are some people who still seem to hold that, whether or not I agree with them on matters of policy. And I think there's too little of that on both sides, actually, these days. Yeah. So um, So anyway, I mean, that would be that would be my take, because I, I would think and I would hope that most Republicans would have that. Me too. That sense uh, that uh, you don't want to. Um, again, it's there's there ought to be sort of a counter majoritarian uh, sort of impulse that's as part of conservatism. Well, let's hope so for sure. So, you know, kind of along the same lines, I guess, uh, maybe we can talk, uh, I think it relates to this, right? Because there were primary elections this week. And uh, well, uh, I think it may say some things about Donald Trump's hold over the Republican Party, uh, elections in West Virginia and Nebraska. And normally, of course, we don't talk a lot about primary elections. These might matter because in the last week before, right, there's this come come from behind win from behind, by yeah, yeah, J.D. Vance. Exactly. And uh, uh, but this mm. week or, or as you may have, as Trump calls him, uh, J, J.D. J.P. or J.D. <laughs> Mandel. That, that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whoever. He's doing great. He's yeah. doing great stuff. <laughs> but but so, OK, this week. Uh, this last week, Trump has a big win. Uh, in, there's an incumbent versus incumbent contest in West Virginia because West Virginia has lost a congressional seat. And the new district seemed like it should favor uh, incumbent one, David McKinley, over the Trump-endorsed uh, incumbent Alex Mooney, but Mooney won easily. But there's Nebraska, on the other hand. Uh, Trump endorses uh, Charles Herbster, who was defeated uh, narrowly, like uh, in a multi-candidate race, I think 33 by 3%, uh, by Jim Pillins in the University of Nebraska regent, who was also backed by the term-limited departing governor, Pete Ricketts. Uh, so I should also mention that to this point, Trump-endorsed candidates have won 39 out of 40 times in primaries that have been held to this point. But, and I know you're getting ready to say this, Jay, I'll say it for you, doesn't mean a whole lot because most of those races weren't even contested. So let's just look at contested races. Well, you can argue there were really probably about seven of those. The Trump candidate has won in six of those. Only Herbster's lost. And that one, his candidate, uh, kind of, there were these accusations of sexual harassment by eight women, including a Republican state senator and issues, I think, about him taking his business out of state or something like that. So right now, at least, based on what we've seen to this point, it seems like Donald Trump uh, you can make a case, certainly, that Donald Trump's seal of approval means an awful lot in Republican primaries. So maybe you have a different perspective on this. I don't know. I'm interested in hearing it. Um, I'd say it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, and I think it helps the extent to which it makes a difference. Uh, I think we can we could debate. I'm trying to find a article right now, but uh, <laughs> as we speak. Um, um, but uh, I, I think, you know, for, for one thing, every um, race comes down to its own people, right? I think especially in, in Senate races, in bigger races. Uh, so it's not just uh, Donald Trump. Um, looking at the, the Ohio race, right, 
Um, on the one hand, um, it it helped. Uh, then you can you can say, well, look, uh, JD Vance uh, did kind of. It wasn't a, necessarily come from behind. He was in the, the top two. Um, but you also have to factor in he got a ton of money from Peter Thiel uh, late in the game. Um, and if you also look at the Ohio numbers, uh, and I, I do have these pulled up in front of me, um, this was it was a it was a wide open race, and there were like five candidates. Uh, so sixty eight percent of Ohio Republicans uh, ignored or rejected uh, Trump's endorsement. Right? They voted for someone other than Vance. I mean, he won with whatever twenty. It was a uh, yeah twenty three percent. But but it seems. But I guess no. Pre- uh, last pre- um. 32, 32% on election day. He was 23% before the, before the endorsement. But I mean, that's the problem, right? Here, at least how I see it is there are a lot of states like Ohio. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is, is unless something bizarre happens, J.D. Vance is going to be the next senator from yes. the state of Ohio. I mean, Tim I Ryan, God bless him. I, he's, he's, I'm sure he's going to do his and best. Tim, Tim but, Ryan, who is trying to run as Trumpy as possible. Yeah, now. exactly. Sure. I mean, because he wants yeah. to at least, you know, not lose by a lot, right? But, uh, but the, the thing is, is, in a lot of these races, the primary is the election, right? And so what that means is it sets up a situation where if more and more of these folks feel like they owe something to Donald Trump, well, that that could potentially have some pretty significant ramifications down the line. Because, of course, in 2016, 2017, it's not like anyone felt that they owed anything pretty much to Donald Trump, right? He surprised the hell out of everyone. But now this sets the stage for a Congress that potentially in 2025 that is far more compliant to whatever Donald Trump might want to do, a Donald Trump who doesn't have to worry about re-election, right? So who can do essentially, you know, is maybe even more unleashed, unhinged, whatever un- word you want to use. And so I don't necessarily, I'm not trying to be apocalyptic about it, but I can certainly understand. You're moving to Uruguay. Oh, yeah, exactly. But, but, but I can certainly understand people who look at the, this set of statistics, this set of facts, I guess, and the fact of the matter of how primaries work and how the Republican primaries, especially for the presidency, work, and saying that, well, this is what draws out the most extreme voters and so forth. And, you know, and so I don't know. That. It seems to me to be the most likely scenario, and that's depressing to me. A, a world in which Jane Timken, the establishment candidate, right? right. Uh, the chair of the party. Yeah, can't even get in the top five, I think. I think she finished in fifth place. That's a, that's a world that I'm sad to live in. Yeah. I didn't know you clicked, clicked Jane Timken that much. But. Well, you know, I mean, I like well, And also, I would say it's a little ironic because Jane Timken was a, a Trumper. Yeah. Um, she, she was essentially put into, you know, took leadership role uh, of, of the party in sort of a, a Trumpian coup. Yeah, I mean, um, so and, uh, and yet she was she was not nearly. I I'll use the word again, unhinged enough, right? Because you had you had Vance and Mandel going at it like a bunch right. of you know, rabid weasels, essentially. And, right, and, you but know, I think I also mean, you had you had Mandel who was kind of almost more unhinged. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Right. I think that was that was something he was like I said, he was Trumpy without Trump. Um, he was beyond Trump. Yeah. Um, Do you mean Donald Trump looks at him and goes, wow, that guy's got some impulse control. <laughs> no, I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I. So and part of this, look, I, I'm looking at, at 
the Ohio experience just because that's what I'm, I'm closest to. But you have a situation where you had multiple candidates, uh, everyone trying to sort of out-Trump each other, um, uh, except for Dolan. Dolan was the only one who took the right. other, completely other route. He hung in there for a little while, at least. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, what, what I'm saying is still the, the majority of Ohio um, uh, Republican voters voted for the non-Trump candidate, strong yeah. majority. Yeah, and I, and I think... So, so I, I think there's, yeah, there's something to be said the endorsement that I think it, it certainly helped that it put him over the top, given that extra couple. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, is that going to happen in every race? No, it's going to happen in some races. Yeah, but but you would agree, right, with my ultimate conclusion that uh, assuming Donald Trump is reelected in 2024, that the Congress he gets is going to be a more pro-Trump Congress than he had in 2017. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's put it this way. Nobody, no one who was running for Congress in 27 or in 2016 expected the Trump yeah, exactly. to be president. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just <laughs> almost by default, right? Yeah. We would be yeah. beholden to Donald Trump. I'm like, well, why? <laughs> you know, what, what's he going to do to me under uh, President Clinton? But, you know. So it, then to me, then that means that it's it more than ever. It's Donald Trump's party. And, you know, the, the Jay Carsons of the of the Republican Party are just sort of, you know, you're kind of like a, a backseat passenger here on this. This is MAGA Express. Well, to, to be sure, my endorsement carries less weight. <laughs> uh, slightly. But, yeah. I, you know, I, I I think there's also there's going to be uh, Trump fatigue. Keep on saying that, it's and I hope you're right. Point. But I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and no, and look, I, I, I could be wrong. I'm tired of them, so yeah, I buy yeah, it. On it's, it's working. Um, no, I, I do think Republicans historically have tended to be um, less uh, enamored of a, a candidate of a person. Right. That's the Chris Matthews thing of, of we just typically don't have candidates that give us tingles down our legs. Right. Um, Ronald Reagan. You, well, but even looking, even thinking about Reagan, um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of uh, like the Barack Obama moment. Right. You weren't you didn't have people fainting in the aisles uh, with with Ronald Reagan. Um, I, I think people saw Reagan as very much uh, uh, a better a better choice than Jimmy Carter. And in his his second term, very much a better choice than Walter Mondale. Um, but I don't think there's there's a tendency amongst Republicans to get as attached to a savior type figure. At least, well, at least I, historically. I, I think historically you're right. I think that's changed. But but yeah, I right. I mean, there's because sure. to me again, someone and and Ronald Reagan didn't necessarily. He wasn't necessarily Ronald Reagan. Um, in 1980 uh, or even 1984, right? right? No, he became He's also yeah. kind of taken on a historical gloss um, that we, that wasn't necessarily there at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I, I can remember people uh, uh, griping about uh, bailing out Chrysler. Yeah, um, I, I, well, you know? I, I, I'm looking forward to talking of Donald Trump in terms of his historical gloss as opposed to his. Well, no, I, I, no I'm, I'm just bits, saying. Look, there, yeah. were, there were people. Um, conservatives at the time yeah no yeah who were saying yeah reagan's not being tough enough on russia uh and look he's bailing out uh, uh domestic auto yeah so yeah well we we, we will see let's let's hope that trump trump fatigue becomes becomes and, and, and conservatives certainly had issues with uh, george w bush yeah oh yeah definitely so. definitely with him okay well if you are a politics guy supporter the rest of the episode is coming right 
up. We're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff at COVID summit, Ukraine, Russia news, uh, inflation down a little bit. Maybe uh, we'll see the markets, China tariffs. And uh, I already mentioned, uh, will I be will I be leaving the country for Latin America in the next few years? Well, we'll talk about why I might be doing that. And if that's an why okay. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, if you are a supporter, you'll be getting that in just a second. If you're not, a quick reminder, full episodes, ad-free, run usually around two hours or so, available to all of our Patreon supporters, as well as anyone who's not in the position to financially support the podcast. Uh, and to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us through Venmo or at politicsguys, as well as through PayPal. And you can find all that in the show notes or at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get that full access, but again, you're not in that financial uh, position to support the show, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will be happy to get you all set up with that. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could spread the word by subscribing, rating the show, and leaving review on whatever podcast app you happen to use, as well as sharing episodes on social media. Thanks so much.